Good morning. Okay, if you would, please stand as I share today's scripture from the book of Esther, chapter 4, verses 6 through 16, on page 780 of the Pew Bible. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their, for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy, and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people in the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, has but, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for a time such as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is the word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. The book of Esther reads almost like a script for the latest TV drama. Poor orphan girl becomes queen, learns of an evil plot against her people, and faces a major decision to risk her life to save them. And the story even has a major twist. The main character is never mentioned by name. Now there's much more to the story, and we'll get to that later. But for now, let's go back to where it all started. The time frame is around 483 BC in Susa, the capital of Persia. During this time, Babylon was conquered by Persia, and Persia then became the ruling power. Although the Jews in exile in Babylon had been granted freedom 
to return to their homeland, many of the Jewish people stayed in exile rather than go back to war-torn Jerusalem. A significant number of the Jewish people lived scattered through Persia, and in Susa, the Jews were often viewed with suspicion and at times faced threats to their existence. Now, King Xerxes was the ruler in Susa when the story takes place. He was in the third year of his reign, and his wife was Queen Vashti. During this time, the king brought together military leaders, officials, and royalty for a lavish banquet lasting, get this, six months. The king was using this opportunity to show off his enormous wealth and power as well as try to gain support for a military campaign to defeat Greece. At this very decadent party, the king became in high spirits from wine and summoned Queen Vashti to make an appearance at the party so that he could show off his beautiful wife. In reply, the strong-willed Vashti refused the king's order. That most definitely created an uproar not only with the king, but with the other officials at the banquet. They were afraid that if their wives heard what Vashti did against her husband, that their own wives might follow suit. So the king's advisors convinced him to give her the boot, and he did. Queen Vashti was stripped of her title and never allowed back in the king's presence. So why is this part of the story significant? It sets the stage for the beginning of a chain of events that would change the course of history for God's chosen people. All of this description of King Xerxes and his party paved the way for God to do his work to fulfill the covenant he had made with his people long before. God was ready to use the fall of Queen Vashti for the rise of Esther. Next, we will meet a man named Mordecai, a Jew living in Susa, whose family was taken into exile years before. Mordecai was a cousin to young, a young girl named Hadassah, also known as Esther, and he was raising her as his own after she was orphaned. Mordecai held a prominent position in Susa, working at the king's gate, a court outside of the palace where legal matters were settled. His cousin Esther was described as having a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, but it was her inward beauty that drew people to her. People described her as reserved, modest, quiet, sensitive, and kind. Her compliant and humble spirit gained her the favor of everyone who knew her, and that would be a very important quality to have during the time to come. Back at the palace, King Xerxes begins to second-guess his decision to banish Vashti from her position. He had compassion on her, and regretted the severity of the punishment. Persian law declared that any decree issued by the king is irrevocable 
and cannot be reversed. So before the king could lay blame on his advisors for pushing his rash decision made under the influence in anger, his advisors came up with an idea. Have a beauty contest and choose a new queen. He liked the idea and told his attendants to carry it out. Governors from all 127 provinces of Persia searched out beautiful young virgins to be brought into the king's harem. Among the girls chosen was Esther. In circumstances beyond her control, she was taken to the king's palace under duress and ended up in the harem. For the next year, the girls would endure a series of beauty treatments and special preparation. Then, to put it politely, the king would review each of the girls from the harem to see who would be the best candidate to be the new queen. Esther was no exception to all of this treatment. As time went by, everyone around her, including Haggai, the keeper of the harem, noticed something different about her as far as her demeanor and her character. Others paid attention when she responded to her situation in a pleasant, likable manner instead of a bitter, demanding one. Without realizing it, she stood out from the other girls in her attitude and actions. Haggai secretly arranged extra beauty treatments for Esther, provided her with seven maidservants, and transferred her to the best place in the harem. She earned and accepted favor from those around her rather than trying to manipulate and work people to get what she wanted. She simply followed instructions. One crucial piece of the story comes into play here. No one in the palace knew that Esther was Jewish. Mordecai had forbidden her to reveal that fact to anyone, and she was obedient to his wishes. Esther's heritage as a Jew was hidden, but her character came through loud and clear as God made himself visible in her to all who knew her without a word being spoken. Another year had passed, and it was finally Esther's turn to spend time with the king. Each girl was given a choice of anything they wanted to take in with them to make them seem more appealing. But Esther took only what Haggai recommended. Unlike the other girls, she relied on being herself and wasn't a type to try too hard, as the others were doing. It paid off. At first glance, the king knew that Esther was a different type of girl than the others, and he was completely taken by her. She had won his favor as well as his heart. His immediate decision was that she become the new queen. In the end, God used the scheming of the king's advisors for his higher purpose. How else could a humble Jewish orphan girl become queen of Persia? God moved the pieces so one of his own 
was now one of the most influential people in the palace of the largest kingdom on earth. Esther didn't have to push or pressure anything or anyone to be in the position she was in as queen. God put everything exactly into place. Now during this time, Mordecai stayed at the king's gate whenever possible to keep tabs on Esther and her progress. Once, when he was on duty, he overheard two of the guards talking, and he discovered that they were plotting an assassination attempt on the king. His immediate thought was to get word to Esther about what he had heard so that he could warn the king. Mordecai sent the details to her through Hathak, one of her servants, and when the king heard of this news, he investigated and the guards were hanged. The king asked who should be given credit for this discovery, and Esther gave Mordecai the credit, and it was noted in the king's chronicles. It was usually the custom that an act of heroism such as this would have been generously rewarded right away. But Mordecai's bravery was inadvertently overlooked by the king, and nothing was immediately done to honor him. This will come into play later in the story. God was directing the movement and conversation of every person involved. He had seen ahead and purposely positioned Mordecai in the court at the king's gate, where he would overhear the guards. This was not a coincidence. Rather, God had placed Mordecai exactly where he wanted him when he was ready for his part, this part of his plan to play out. Now, right at the time, we would expect to hear about, rec about recognition for Mordecai's heroism in reporting the assassination plot. We are instead introduced to an Amalekite named Haman. He had been promoted to the position of the king's right-hand man, and the royal officials at the king's gate, including Mordecai, were expected to bow down and honor Haman. But even at the king's command, Mordecai refused. The other officials kept asking him why he would not bow to Haman, and he revealed then to them that he was a Jew. Throughout history, it was known that the Amalekites and the Jews were bitter enemies, and it made sense that a Jew did not bow before anyone but God. Haman was livid and came up with a plan to completely destroy not only Mordecai, but the entire population of the Jews as well. With his position and the king's full confidence in him, Haman saw his chance to manipulate the king into making a decree to destroy the Jews. He misled him by talking of a rebellious group of people in the kingdom, but he did not name them. The king trusted Haman to just rubber stamp it with the king's signet ring, which was as powerful as a signature of the king himself. So with the king's approval, Haman had documents prepared 
to issue a decree which, when stamped with the king's ring, could never be revoked. His plan was to kill, annihilate, and destroy all of the Jews, leaving no traces behind. Haman cast lots during the first month of the year to determine when the slaughter should take place, and the lot fell to the twelfth month, meaning that the Israelites would live with the terror of impending massacre for eleven long months. But ultimately, God was the one controlling the lots they used to determine the timing of the Jews' demise, and the results gave the Jews the maximum time for God to work his plan for their benefit. The decree was released at Passover, no less, and Jews everywhere were thrown into shock and confusion. When Mordecai learned of the decree, he grieved, tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and roamed and wailed throughout the city. All around the kingdom, other Jews had the same reaction. Mordecai went as far as the king's gate, but was not allowed to enter while wearing sackcloth. Esther's servants and attendants came to her and told her about Mordecai at the gate, and she was very upset. She sent clothing out to him, which he refused. Esther then sent for servant Hathak and told him to find out what was going on. Mordecai told Hathak all that had taken place and gave him a copy of the decree to take back to Esther. His instructions were for her to go to the king and beg for mercy for her people. So far, Esther kept the secret of her heritage hidden and now her cousin was asking her to reveal it to save the Jewish people. She sent a message back to Mordecai explaining that she hadn't been summoned by the king for 30 days, and it was against the law to go to the king without being summoned. The punishment was death, unless the king would extend his gold scepter and spare the person's life. If she did not act, God's promises to his people would still be fulfilled, one way or another. But she and her father's family would die. She was not exempt from what was going to happen, and she wasn't even safe in the palace. Mordecai recognized that God's divine providence upon Esther's rise to power was for this crisis. And it was not coincidence that she was in the position she was in at that moment. His response to Esther was a pointed question. Who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for a time such as this. Of course, God knew. In this moment, upon hearing Mordecai's solemn warning, Esther is faced with an important choice, her defining moment. God was using this crucial time to remind her and the Jewish people of who they were, who he was, and what he had done for them. In this time of crisis, Esther turned to God, and for the first time, she finally took action and chose to identify herself with the people of God. 
She knew her strength and courage were not enough, and her help would ultimately come from God. She would depend on him to work out the details, which is exactly what he intended. With uncompromising authority, she instructed Mordecai to gather all the Jews for a three-day fast, no eating or drinking for three days and nights. She said that she and her attendants would do the same. The fast was Esther's way of finally showing her faith and dependence on God to turn the heart of a moody, unstable pagan king and bring deliverance. After the three days, she would go to the king, even if it was a life-threatening situation. She would put her life on the line for her people. And as she says in Esther 4.16, if I perish, I perish. Did you catch the big twist in the story that I was talking about? God is never directly mentioned by name in the book of Esther. However, he is the central character. His fingerprints are all over the events of this story, even if it seems he's absent. God's providence is, the moving, is moving and arranging people and circumstances to bring a great deliverance for his people. God's sovereign hand is consistently woven into this story to save the Jews and ensure their survival. God's sovereignty is his right and power to do all that he decides to do and refers to his position of supreme authority. Sovereignty is a characteristic of God, but providence is his action. In order to carry out his plan and purpose, God's providence guides and governs all things. Absolutely everything that needs done to bring about his purposes, God sees to it that it happens. In the case of Esther's story, God's providence would all take place without any miraculous displays or awe-inspiring demonstrations from God. There were no pillars of fire, booming voices, parting of water, or burning bushes. It was through the ordinary, imperfect people in the ordinary life in the world of Esther that God would use to accomplish his plan for his people. And he does the same with us. In our lives, we sometimes have, have things happen to us that make us say, what a coincidence, or it just so happened, or boy, were we lucky there. What about when those things just seem to line up just right? Are those really coincidences? Hardly. Do you think that a God who directed Esther and Mordecai through their daily lives would depend on coincidences or luck to lead us through our day-to-day -day world? Nothing happens by random chance. We know that God placed Esther and Mordecai where he needed them to be. He has planned it all to work just as it does. And he also does that with us. What we call coincidence is actually God's providence.
God is in the ordinary of your everyday life. Daily chores, routine events, jobs, mistakes, decisions you make, normal everyday life, where the obvious experience it with your five senses, presence of God, is almost undetected. Our limited perception does not mean that his dealings with us are not real. God is right in the middle of all of it. Every little moment matters, and he wants to use you in these moments. Seemingly everyday things are what God uses to accomplish big things. He uses the ordinary stuff with ordinary messed up people. That's where God loves to work. The more you read between the lines, the more it helps you see him in your daily life and see his will for your moments. And when you start seeing what he wants in the small moments, you will be ready for your defining moments when they come. And you'll have courage to follow him in those too. Sometimes we recognize our defining moments when we're experiencing them. Other times we only recognize them when we look back and see God's providence in action. Like Esther, the time may come when God may be calling you to step out of the shadows and take obedient action. Or perhaps he's asking you to reveal your identity as a Christian to reach out to others, even though that might, res might result in ridicule or having to take a big risk. Just remember that any time God asks you to step out for him, you're not going alone and he is working all around you in your situation to set the stage. Whatever, whenever, and wherever your moments are, the everyday ones or the great defining ones, God is always working. He can work through you according to his purpose by turning what we might think as ordinary into the extraordinary. Esther and Mordecai are proof of it. As I said in the beginning, there's much more to this story. Tune in next week for part two. God's not finished behind the scenes yet. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you don't leave us alone. They are always here working in our lives. Whether we can see you, hear you, feel you or not, you are always here with us and you are guiding us and directing us through our lives, even in the little mundane, daily, ordinary things, to play out your purpose. Lord, you have a purpose for each of us, and we have times where we have decisions to make, and we know that you are guiding and directing those decisions. Lord, we just ask that you help us to know that you are there. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.